Half of all of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. And Jesus gave a label to that. He called it hypocrisy, which is something we have discussed lately, a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning, as Jesus trained his disciples and told them to beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We also talked about it several Sunday nights ago when we were going through the book of Isaiah, where God admonishes the people not to bring any more sacrifices. Incense was an abomination to him. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. And when you spread your hands in prayer, I will not hear you. We've spoken a lot about hypocrisy because, and it seems to be a recurrent theme, because wherever you find Christians or God's people, you're going to find hypocrisy. It's the age-old enemy of God's people. It's not something that you find once as an isolated teaching in the New Testament. It seems like you find it on almost every page of Scripture where God sets out His ideal, yet in the midst of His people there are those who pretend to live the ideal, yet they're practicing hypocrisy. Inside, there really is no change. Now that does not mean that Christians cannot fail, nor does hypocrisy mean that we fail to reach our goal. There is not one Christian alive who is able to live up to everything he reads and knows. And that's something we all struggle with, that battle that we have. We want to grow, we want to be more like the Lord, and yet we battle our own flesh, our own sinful nature, and we battle the world with all of its allurements. And of course, behind the scene is the devil, who uses the worldly allurements and uses your flesh and puts them together to entice you and to draw you back so that you will not grow. And we all know what it's like. And sometimes we even feel, because I haven't reached my ideal goal as a Christian, I am a hypocrite. Hypocrisy doesn't mean a failure to reach your goal in the Lord. Hypocrisy means a deliberate misrepresentation of the truth, a deliberate deception, where you try to come off as something other than you really are. It is the exact opposite of humility. You see, humility can best be defined as being known for who you are, which is something that scares a whole lot of people. We are afraid to let people know who we really are deep inside, what we really feel, what questions and doubts really go on inside of our minds. We're afraid because if we express and expose our real self, they might not like us. They might push us away. They might think things like, I didn't know you thought those things, or you believe that, or you had that question. And so instead of humility being known for who we are, oftentimes we take the mask of hypocrisy, wanting to be known in some kind of a spiritual image, but deep inside, behind the mask, we're something very, very different than that. Humility and hypocrisy seem to be exact opposites. Whenever you have creed, that is, what a person believes, and you have conduct, 
that is opposite of the creed. In other words, where the creed and the conduct don't mesh, you have hypocrisy. I remember the story in the book of Jeremiah where God said, Jeremiah, i got a tough job for you to do. I want you to stand at the gates of the temple. And all of the people of Israel are going into the temple because they believe it's, it's the worship day. We need to go to church. We need to go to the temple. I'm a good Jewish person. I bring my sacrifice. I go to the temple. It's my Saturday obligation. They had Saturday. We have Sunday nowadays. And so Jeremiah was to stand in front of the, the door of the temple in Jerusalem. And as people were pouring in, he would yell out, Trust not in lying vanities. Everybody would look and see who it is. It was Jeremiah. He's saying, Don't trust in lying vanities, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Turn from your wickedness. You see, they were practicing all sorts of evil things, yet going to church. And God's reaction to that was, I want to change from within. You know, I have always been intrigued. I've shared with you before concerning this. How it seems like God was always gracious as long as a person was honest. I mean, you could be the vilest, most wretched person on earth and Jesus had patience with it. You could be a harlot, a prostitute. But if you were honest, Jesus could hang out with you. He would change you. He would love you. Woman, where are your accusers? Sir, I have none. Neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. Yet to the religious bigwigs who pretended to be spiritual, but inside there was no change, boy, he let loose. He had scathing remarks for them. God never is angry at honesty. But God is always angry at hypocrisy. The best reaction, if you want to find out what is God's reaction to hypocrisy, well, we're coming to a perfect chapter for that tonight, chapter 5. We see in chapter 5 the reaction of the Holy Spirit to sin entering the corporate body life of the church. It is a reaction that is kind of unparalleled. We don't find it again in the pages of Scripture. But the Holy Spirit is showing us, this is what I think about it. Let me read to you Jesus' reaction as the Pharisees gathered around him, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus. They were all gathering around Jesus, putting up their spiritual fronts, acting a certain way, but inside they were another way. And Jesus, and I'm just going to read a portion of it in Matthew 13. He said, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel tongue-in-cheek. You're so worried that you would eat a little gnat because it's unkosher and unclean and in the process you swallow a whole camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? If you're a hypocrite, you don't want to hang around Jesus. He will nail your hide to the wall. Now, if you're a sinner and you're honest, he will patiently, gently woo you to his side, convince you of your sin and say, let me cleanse that for you, okay? Let me change you from what you are into something I want you to be. But if you pretend to be something, well, you can see his reaction here. Acts chapter 5 is a reaction like that. Ananias and Sapphira are the people in question here. They're putting up a front. And really, that's the bottom line issue. They're putting up a front. They're pretending to be something that they are not. You know, one time I saw a church building that was kind of, well, it was a very ugly church building. Very plain, kind of like ours on the outside. Yet what this one church did, it was very interesting, is the very front of the building, they made an expensive, rich-looking facade. So that from the front of the building, you think, wow! But you go around the back, and the thing, it was just just a front. It was just a cover-up. I guess there's nothing wrong with that, except from the outside, you think, woo! But, you know, it's just really an old, shabby building. It reminds me of the time I went to Metro Golden Mayer Studios in Hollywood and kind of took uh, my own little tour of it. I hopped the fence, actually. I was unsaved high school kid, and I hopped the fence with a buddy, and I wanted to see what it was like behind there. I didn't want to take the Universal Studios tour. It cost money. Now, I don't recommend this to you youngsters that you should emulate me in these um, foolish childhood things because I got busted by the police, okay? But I noticed something. I found the set. The entire house with the water wheel and everything from Gone with the Wind. And I thought, God, look at that home. That's fabulous. It's a mansion. And I went up a little closer to it and I found that it was only about that thick. It was all a facade. They filmed the outside of that. They filmed the inside somewhere else and it was just a stand-up front of a building. Well, that's the whole thing with Ananias and Sapphira. Inside is a shabby building of sin. But they're putting up this front of spirituality and they're really not like that at all. Now let's just read through this story. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. And so fear came upon all those who heard these things. And you can understand why. And the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Now what a contrast we are reading from what we have read previously. We have seen in the first four chapters a powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the church. We've seen incredible growth. 5,000 saved, 3,000 saved. Koinonia developing between the church. In the midst of persecution, people were giving their possessions to people who didn't have other things. And now we read this. And I guess it would be best to read the last couple verses of chapter 4 together with verse 1 of chapter 5. In verse 36... Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold the possession. You see, the word but is a word of contrast. It's a hinge. We're reading all of the fabulous work of the Holy Spirit. But there was a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. That word but is a word of failure. All of those wonderful things that happened, but here we have a a change of direction and we see hypocrisy entering into the church. You know, I have heard people say, we have got to get back to the New Testament church. Why? There's a lot of things in the New Testament church I'd love to avoid. This is one of them. Yes, I understand what you mean by that. Yes, the simplicity of the gospel must be revived. Yes, tapping into the power of the Lord, like we heard testimony tonight of the group that went down to Mexico. We need to tear away all of the trappings and just get down to business with the Lord. But there are a lot of things in the New Testament church in the book of Acts that, frankly, I want nothing to do with. I don't want this to happen to our church. I mean, how would you like it if every time you misrepresented the truth, you were killed? It could only happen once, couldn't it? I mean, we would have a funeral ministry at the church. Instead of altar calls... Well, how's the church doing? Oh, well, we subtracted this week by about 800. (laughs) Or what about Acts chapter 15? Legalism that crept in the church that they had to fight with. What about the church of Corinth? That's a New Testament church. Paul said, you are all carnal. And so there are certain principles we need to get back to. There are other principles we need to look at and learn from them, like my history professor used to say in college. He who fails to learn from history is doomed to relive it. I don't want to relive Acts chapter 5. I want to learn the lesson and I want to move on with my walk in the Lord. Now, Ananias and Sapphira had land. They sold the land, but there was a deception, a deliberate deception here. They lied. They put up a front. Their error was not that they did not give enough money. See, that is a mistake people make. They think, well, I guess the apostles wanted a bigger offering. And because they didn't get so much money, 
They kind of got angry and the Holy Spirit got angry and they died. That's not it at all. They were under no obligation to sell their land for any amount. It was purely voluntary. Just like Barnabas who sold his land. These people sold their land. Their sin was not that they didn't give enough. It's they pretended to give more than they did. What they did is they sold it for a certain amount, kept back part of the price, and the leftover money, they said, well, that's what we sold the land for to begin with. And here, we're giving it all to God, all that we sold it for at church, yet they kept something for themselves. Now, it would have been fine if they would have just told the truth and said, listen, we sold the land and we wanted to keep some money because we just want to buy a few things for the house. We want to buy a CD player and a few other luxuries. And... Uh, Here's the rest of the money we sold the land for here. It belongs to the church. But they were not honest. They hid the truth. They pretended to give more than they did. No doubt they had watched Barnabas sell his land and give the money to the church. And they watched the reaction that the people had at what Barnabas did. And they no doubt heard some of the things going around the church as The pastor announced, you know, Barnabas just gave a whole bunch. He sold all of his land and gave a bunch of money to the church. And now we're going to, you know, be able to distribute it. And people were saying, wow, Barnabas, what a loving brother. What a a spiritual giant Barnabas is. And Ananias and Sapphira heard those words and they got a little jealous. They wanted the reputation. They wanted the same reputation Barnabas had, but they weren't willing to make the sacrifice. They kept back part of it for themselves. They said, Peter, here's the money. And Peter said, why are you lying? (laughs) Bam! And didn't even give him time really to explain why. His wife came in three hours later. How you doing, guys? Fine. Why did you lie like your husband? (laughs) They went out and they buried him immediately. Ananias and Sapphira, when they sold the land and they gave the money to the apostles, looked spiritual in the eyes of certain people. The eyes of everyone in church was upon them, but there was another set of eyeballs they didn't take into consideration, and that was the Lord's. The Lord was watching what they were doing. And to make things worse, the Lord snitched on them. I mean, how did Peter know about this? It seems like the Lord, through a spiritual gift, perhaps the word of knowledge, conveyed to Peter that these people are lying. And they just came right out and just busted them. And they just thought, oops, God told on us. One time, we had a couple come to this church. This is several years ago. We've had incidences like this before. But this one in particular, this couple came, they were dating, they wanted to get married, and we asked them several questions about their relationship. Because if we're going to marry somebody, we're going to get nosy. We want to find out about their relationship with each other and with the Lord. We're under no obligation to perform a marriage ceremony, and if we do, we want to have a reasonable kind of a foundation that that relationship is going to last. And so the counselor, very very much had wisdom in the Lord. He said, tell me about your relationship with each other. And they told him, and da-da-da-da, we love the Lord, and we've abstained from any sexual misconduct. Oh, I see. And at the end of the conversation, the counselor looked him right in the eye and said, you know what? You have lied to me this entire time. 
Now that takes guts to say that. He said, not only have you lied, but you are living together. And you are having sexual relationships with each other. And it's been going on for X amount of months. And the couple dropped their mouth. How'd you know? And they started getting angry. And the counselor went on. He brought them to a point where they confessed their sin, repented of it, and we were able to work with them. You can get pretty scary when you're not walking with the Lord and God gives somebody a word of knowledge, huh? See, you can't pull a fast one over on God. You can pull a fast one over on lots of us, but you better watch out for those people who are gifted in that area. Hypocrisy is one of the greatest enemies of the church. It always has been. When people misrepresent God, and I have to admit it, but it seems more prevalent among those in the ministry than anywhere else. And the world knows that. And that's why people who are not Christians are very leery about listening to anyone who speaks in the name of the Lord, who's a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, because they've seen all the garbage. There was a guy who blew through town here one time and talked all about his ministry and how he wanted to raise money to get these trucks and cars and vans and stuff to preach the gospel. And he guaranteed that everybody on his team was a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. All the truck drivers will pray for you. da 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 My friend went out and talked to the truck drivers afterwards. They were drunk. What a great enemy of the church hypocrisy is. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira is that, first of all, they had wrong motivations in giving. They wanted a reputation. They wanted people to think they were something they were not. And number two, they pretended. They put on the show. A few words before we go on about giving. Because the Scripture talks about ways we should give. To sum up the New Testament teaching, we are to give freely from our hearts because everything belongs to the Lord. We are to give financially in proportion to what we make. The Bible says that we should lay up the first day of the week according as God has prospered you. If you make more, you give more. If you make less, you give less. Yes, the Scripture teaches tithing, but in the New Testament it goes above and beyond that. And the Scripture says that we are to give with a joyful heart. It says that we're not to give grudgingly or out of necessity, but God loves a cheerful giver. Which, as most of you know, the Greek word is God loves a hilarious giver. You see, when you say, oh, here's the offering plate, they're taking it from you again. Okay, here. That's not what God meant when He said, give to the work of the Lord. Give it freely and hilariously. I mean, laugh when you give it. Ha, 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 Lord, it's all yours anyway here. For God loves a cheerful giver. We're not to ever give grudgingly or out of necessity. When Jesus taught, He said that we ought to be careful how we give with the right motivation, that we should never do it to get glory for ourselves. Ananias and Sapphira did. Remember, Jesus looked at the Pharisees who were putting money in the agape boxes of the temple. 
And they would blow the trumpets and people would look and they'd put in a large gift and people would clap. Woo! Jesus said, don't do that. And then he pointed out a widow who had very little to be put in, a quarter of a cent. And she said, you know that this woman is so poor that in giving a quarter of a cent, she gave out of her poverty, they gave out of their abundance. And be careful, Jesus said, how you give. Now, I, like you, hate hype in the name of God. And you know what? I am convinced God hates hype. There is an attitude among ministries and ministers that the end justifies the means. Well, who cares if you use hype? At least you got money from it. And we had a good offering tonight. That's the important thing. Now the work of the Lord can go on. God hates hype when you use His name to do it. And yes, I know that Christians are responsible to give to the work of the Lord. And you know what? If every single Christian believer took the responsibility of financial giving seriously and every Christian gave to the work of the Lord, there'd be no lacking. You never have to beg for money. But it gets old when ministries have to continually beg for money. It really gets old. In fact, Mark Twain used to say he got so tired of people begging for money, not only did he not give what he was going to give, but he took money out of the plate when the offering was passed. (laughs) Now that's why we don't take an offering, just so you can't do that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Watch out for how people motivate you to give. Don't do it out of guilt. Do it out of responsibility and love. And if you're motivated to do it, say, okay, fine, I believe God wants me to do this, and it's from my heart, and I'm being obedient to God. But let your motivation be pure. Their motivation was so that they could receive praise from men. We have to watch out for motivation. I've heard people on television and on the radio talk about giving solely as a means for you to make more. Well, if you give, God will give to you. This is your seed faith gift. And if you plant your seed faith, it'll grow. And the whole motivation is so you can get more out of giving. I don't think that's what God had intended. You see, when you give... Okay, it's over now. When you give to the Lord, it's because it was God's to begin with. And you don't own anything. You are a steward of what God happens to let you borrow for a while. Ananias and Sapphira forgot that. And they gave with pretense. In verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, you were not obligated to do this thing. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? For you have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias, hearing these words, he just, boom, fell down, breathed his last, they came in, and they buried him. You know, as I read these passages again, I thank God that he does not deal with the modern church like he dealt with the early church. Imagine if we were to sing something that was not right. If we were to sing the old hymn, I surrender all. (laughs) If we really didn't surrender all, 
And they were nice spiritual words. And God dealt with us like He dealt with them back then. Church growth would be a thing of the past. Many people, when they read these words, frankly, are shocked that God would get so upset because two people lied about a business deal. I mean, isn't there a better way to deal? That doesn't sound like God. It sounds like the Godfather dealing with people. I cannot tolerate this. (laughs) Boom. Just knocked them off. Do you have to understand something? Acts chapter 5 is the beginning of an entirely new work called the church. The book of Acts. The church has just come into being. And it's a whole new work of salvation. And it seems like there were periods like this where God did act like this before. In the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was first erected, There were two kids by the name of Nadab and Abihu who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They started worshiping God in an unprescribed way, and God reacted to that, and they died. Now, that didn't happen after that to everybody in Israel, but it happened to them. God was reacting to the hypocrisy. As soon as they entered the land of Canaan, and they took over Jericho, there was a man by the name of Achan who took some of the devoted things of Jericho took them for himself, hid them among his own baggage, and he died. They stoned him because of it. God commanded it. It didn't happen after that subsequently, but it did happen. And here is the reaction of the Holy Spirit to a church that has been pure and free from any corporate hypocrisy at all up to this point. It's been pure, it's been powerful, it's been dynamic, and this is the first taint of hypocrisy, and the Holy Spirit is simply showing His reaction. It's nothing that continues to happen, because there have been hypocrites, and there still are in the church, and God doesn't knock them dead. Sometimes we might think that He should, but He doesn't. Because God today is gracious. But here in Acts, He is simply showing His reaction to sin. And isn't it interesting that when the problem did occur, it's centered around what? Material possessions. You know, there is such a strong pull toward materialism. All of us fight it, don't we? It's always an enemy. To be discontent and to want more greed and yet try to put on a spiritual front. That pull toward materialism. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. I find that that is one thing I always have to bring before the Lord, is the pull of the society that I live in toward getting more and getting bigger things and getting better things, and when to say no. That pull toward materialism. I heard a story of a young man who was proposing to a girl. They had been dating for a while, and he proposed to her, and they were out on a lake in a boat. And he said, darling, I love you more than anyone else in the world. And even though I don't have a Rolls Royce and I don't have a yacht like Johnny Green has, I love you with all my heart. And she paused and said, well, honey, I love you with all my heart. But tell me a little more about Johnny Green. We kind of laugh at that, but 
we know what it's like to feel the pull. Oh, yes, I want to do so much for God, but I've got my own little world I've got to take care of. And if I can kind of pull off both, let people think that I'm giving all to the Lord, but holding back some for my own grief, then I can cover the best of both worlds. Well, as we read on, she came in, she died, they buried her immediately. And 11, verse 11 is the result. Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The result was a wave of godly fear that swept over the church. One of the healthiest things that can ever happen. When Christians start having a godly fear of the presence of God, a respect. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. The fear of the Lord is something I think you will agree that is lacking in the lives of many professed believers. It's, I can sin, I can go out and do what I want because I can always hang my hat on the grace of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all that simply means is not you're going to shake in your boots like Dorothy and the Lion and the Wizard of Oz. That's not the fear he's speaking about. He's speaking about a healthy respect and reverence. I don't want to do this because it would displease and offend a holy God. And I'm a child of God. And like father, like son, God said, be holy for I am holy. And since he's that way, I want to emulate him and I don't want to displease him. I love him too much. That's what a godly fear means. A fear came upon all the church. Not only the people who saw it, but the people who heard about it. And not a lot of people were ready to become Christians after that. They wanted to count the cost. They wanted to make sure. You know, I want to make sure I'm ready to give all to the Lord before I say I do. Look what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I want to kind of bring this to a close here tonight and bring out a few important principles for us to go home with that emerge from the text. Number one, the presence of the flesh in the life of the Christian. Even though we are saved, we have in ourselves an enemy. In fact, you might say we are our own worst enemy. I don't care how much of a Christian you are. I don't care how godly you are. You don't have one nature. You have two natures. When you were born into this world, you were born with the nature of sin. It's called in the Bible the flesh or the old nature, the sinful nature. When you were born again, you got given a new nature. He didn't take away the old nature because that's part and parcel of being human. You are a fallen being. But when you ask Jesus to take over, he gives you a new nature. Now all of a sudden, a strange dynamic happens. A battle starts developing that you never noticed. And it's a battle that only happens to the Christian. It doesn't happen to the unbeliever. And that puzzles a lot of Christians. The Bible says the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you can't do the things you want to do. Paul the Apostle had that. In Romans chapter 7, Mr. Spiritual himself, Paul the Apostle, said, I want to do certain things, but every time I try to do them, I end up not doing them. And the things that I know I shouldn't be doing... I find myself doing them. 
It's a battle that I have. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He experienced the same battle that you experience. The presence of the flesh in the life of the Christian. And sometimes it actually shocks us how depraved we can still be in the way we think and the things we can do. You might lash out and say something to someone and you think, oh my goodness, I didn't know I could still say those kinds of things. I thought that was all of the past. You see, the new nature wants to have control, but so does the old nature. See, that's the battle you face. And don't you face that every day? Don't you face that your spirit wants to grow close to the Lord? When the alarm goes off in the morning, your spirit, your new nature tells you, oh, I want to get up and read the Word and be in fellowship with God. But your old nature is still groggy. Your old nature knows exactly where the 10-minute snooze control is on the alarm clock. I mean, it's natural. Your new nature tells you, husbands, my wife has worked so hard, I'm going to wash the dishes tonight, I'm going to clean up the house. That's your new nature. But your old nature says something to you very differently. Ah, let the old lady handle it. She's done it before, she's better at it than you are anyway. The new nature tells you, I need to spend time with God in prayer. The old nature says, God understands. I'm not perfect. And we have that battle. No matter who you are, no matter how long you walk in the Lord. There's another principle. The power of Satan that we see comes out in this text. For Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see, Satan whispered in the ear of Ananias. Hey, look how they talked about Barnabas. And he became so famous because of this. And he gave and they thought he was so spiritual. You can be spiritual too. Except you can even keep some for yourself. And Satan whispered to his heart, to his mind. And Ananias latched onto it, told his wife about it. The power of Satan. We need to be aware, folks, of spiritual warfare. It's not a joke. There is a real personal devil who is your real personal enemy. And we need to keep something in mind that when it speaks in Ephesians chapter 6 about taking on the weapons of our warfare, he's speaking to Christians, not non-Christians. We are in a battle, not only with our flesh, but with the devil who seeks to speak to our old nature, our flesh, and convince us to go his way. There are many Christians who kind of ignore this whole spiritual battle. They look for the nearest foxhole. They want to cover, a sh- put a shield over their back, bury their head in the sand, and just stick a sword out of the foxhole, hoping an enemy will fall on it someday, instead of aggressively going out and fighting the fight. The presence of Satan. Now, I want to say something about this, because I read a book that it was absolutely hilarious that said, this verse proves that a Christian can be demon-possessed. Now, I'm going to read that to you again, and you see if this has textually, contextually, historically, enough evidence to prove that a Christian is demon-possessed. Not whispered to and lied to and cajoled by the enemy, possessed. 
Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? You have not lied unto man, but you lied to God. I don't think you can get that out of that at all. In fact, let me read to you a couple verses of scriptures out of the book of Colossians that might clear things up for you. Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Satan is very powerful. We can never minimize spiritual warfare. But don't get the rotten idea, the inaccurate idea, that Satan is the opposite of God. It's not true. Satan is a created being. He has a definite end. It's spoken about in the book of Revelation, where he is cast from the presence of God. He's cast out of the presence of people, and he's no longer able to tempt people and to rip people off. Yes, he's powerful. But to say he's the opposite of God, that's, that's ridiculous. That's like Hulk Hogan fighting Michael Jackson in the ring. I mean, he'd tear him to shreds. And there will come a day when God will just say, I've had enough, your reign has been sufficient, and he will be ousted. And he'll be shut up and, and sealed out and destroyed forever. Number three. The Holy Spirit, as seen here, is not an influence, but is a person. And not only just any person, but God. Did you notice what Peter said? You have not lied to men, but you lied to God. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to man, you've lied to God. The Holy Spirit, by Peter, was called God in the same breath. There are people, and I, this is the reason I share this with you, because some of you have had questions about this. There are groups, Unitarians, Jehovah Witnesses, and others, who say there's no such thing as a trinity. It was invented by a group of early Christians, but nobody really believes that of any worth and any significance. You've been lied to if you believe in a trinity. And the Holy Spirit is merely the impersonal force or influence of God. Well, let me ask you a question. How can you lie to an influence or a force? Can you lie to a force? Oh, you lied to my force. You lied to that electricity over there. You can only lie to a person who has personality. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He... Ever called force He? He will guide you into all truth. He will lead you. The Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Can you grieve a force or an influence? You can only grieve a person. It says the Holy Spirit is interceding, praying for us, makes intercession like Jesus does. Can a force pray and intercede for you? No. He is a person and He is a divine person. He is called God in this verse. Now, don't ask me to explain the Trinity in a way that you will be able to totally grasp. I am finite. God is infinite. I, being a created being, cannot totally comprehend all that my Creator does. But I do know this. The Father is called God in the Scripture. 
Jesus is called God in the Scripture and claimed it for Himself. And the Holy Spirit is also called God in the Scripture and given the same divine attributes of creation, omnipotence, omnipresence, and the like throughout the Scripture. And there's another Scripture I'd like to read along these lines. In 2 Corinthians 3, listen carefully. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine personality. And finally, the final lesson here is that the presence of the Holy Spirit demands separation from sin. It demands separation from sin. The overwhelming fact of this story, folks, isn't that two people kick the bucket. The overwhelming truth is was the church was so pure in its inception that that purity, in a sense, was the contrast that was, it was so pure, it was such a contrast that their sin, it was such a reaction by the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit demands separation from sin. Now, you know what? It's easy to point our finger at Ananias and Sapphira and to laugh at them and they died and everything else. But let's examine ourselves. For example, when we pray publicly in front of people, in a group of people, at the dinner table, in a kinship, in a Bible study, when we pray publicly, are we really meaning what we are saying to the Lord? Or are we thinking of words that would have a profound effect upon people who hear us. So they would go, mm, yes, amen. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Or how about preaching in our prayers? You know, some people use prayer to say things to people that they wouldn't have the guts to face to face. Now, Lord, just convict him because he's wrong. Or I've heard people quote a whole bunch of things and almost tell God an, an entire story that God already knows anyway. And using it to preach a message to somebody rather than praying from their heart to God. That is hypocrisy. That's pretending to be something. It's the opposite of humility, being known for who you are. Or what about when we sing songs? Are they sincerely from our hearts? Or is it just routinely? See, the presence of the Holy Spirit should make a dynamic influence on us. When we're all alone, the Holy Spirit is still there. When we think thoughts that nobody sees, the Holy Spirit sees them. When we have an attitude toward another brother or sister that's wrong, the Holy Spirit takes note of that. And if we could be aware of that, that would change our lives. One of the best books I ever read on the Holy Spirit was a guy by the name of Dr. R.A. Torrey. And he read a paragraph that has never ceased to make an impact on me and still make changes in my life. He said, there is perhaps no passage in the Bible in which the personality of the Holy Spirit comes out more tenderly and touchingly than in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. Here grief is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a blind, impersonal influence or power that comes into our lives to illuminate, sanctify, and empower them. No. He is immeasurably more than that. He is a holy person who comes to dwell in our hearts. One who sees clearly every act we perform, every word we speak, every thought we entertain, 
even the most fleeting fancy that is allowed to pass through our minds. And if there is anything in act, word, or deed that is impure, unholy, unkind, selfish, petty, or untrue, that infinitely holy one is deeply grieved by it. I know of no thought that will help one more than this to lead a holy life and to walk softly in the presence of the Holy One. If we allow the words, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, to sink into our hearts and become the motto of our lives, they will keep us from many a sin. How often some thought or fancy has knocked for an entrance in my own mind and was about to find entertainment when the thought has come The Holy Spirit sees that thought and will be grieved by it. And that thought is gone. The Holy Spirit in the life of the church was powerful. And when there was hypocrisy and there was deficiency in that testimony, we read the reaction. That doesn't mean that Ananias and Sapphira were not Christians. It doesn't mean they won't be in heaven. But it does mean that judgment fell as a testimony to the church. This is what I think of spiritual hypocrisy. Let's pray. Lord, You are so tender and so gracious to those who are honest. And You're hard and You're tough on those who pretend to be something they are not. And so, Lord, we now look inwardly and we ask that You would purify our thoughts, our motivations, that we would serve You with a sincere, contrite heart. We confess, Lord, that we have a strong old nature. Our flesh loves the applaudance of man. We love reputation. We focus on what is outward. You know that, and we confess that to You. Oh, how we love to perform, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord, from these things. And beyond that, Lord, enable us by reminding us that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that indeed, He wants us to surrender all. Father, if if some have been living behind the mask of hypocrisy, I pray, Father, that You might just touch their heart tonight. Cause a real change to occur. They might give You their entire heart and their life and truly bear the name Christian by being, not just acting or looking like a Christian. Lord, thank You for the fellowship of the saints that we've enjoyed tonight, singing, hearing the testimony of how You've changed lives, how you've changed others through the testimony and witnessing of others, even down in Mexico. We know that you're alive and you, you work where there's faith. 
where we give you the, the room to work, you do amazing things. We can expect nothing less from so great a God. In Jesus' name, amen.